Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans and Jeff Shade, a show that simplifies the complexities of investments, taxes, retirement, and more so you can discover how to better sustain yourself and your wealth for years to come. Brian is a CPA with 30 years experience and a financial advisor, which brings a unique perspective to the financial world. This show is brought to you by Madrona Financial and CPAs, home of the Rooted Wealth Plan. Want a retirement plan designed to last 30 plus years? Go to madronafinancial.com and click Get Started to see what the Rooted Wealth Plan can do for you. And now, here are your hosts, Brian Evans and Jeff Shade. Thanks so much and welcome to Growing Your Wealth from Madrona Financial and CPAs, where we give you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Brian Evans, president of Madrona Financial and CPAs. How you doing today, Brian? Doing great. Thanks, Jeff. Always glad to hear that. I know our listeners are doing well today, too. We've got another great show lined up for us today. We've got a lot of things to talk about. Chief among them is going going to be what's happening insofar as current events today. What's happening in the economy? What's happening in the market? Let's start off with these uh, rallies, Brian. We were talking off the air a little bit that we see these sort of little blip rallies where things go up and they come down, but there really is no real rhyme or reason. There's really no substance behind that. So should you really react when these things happen? Jeff, don't say that out loud. They're going to shut down CNBC Closing Bell. They're going to shut down Fox Business. They're going to shut down every single business show there is because what do they do? They talk about, well, the market was down today because yeah. soybean futures in Portugal were off due to a, a rain shower. You right, know, right. They just make stuff up. I mean, they're always trying to predict. And so what do you think that is going to happen tomorrow with such and such stock? Well, I think this, that, and the other. And they're right about, oh, roughly uh, 50% of the time. And, uh, Fifty percent of the time, they're wrong. It's just, yeah. it's it's kind of silly to say, boy, I can look at some data because see, the stock market is not something where people don't have information. We all have the same information. If you have information someone doesn't have, it's called insider trading, and you might get the SEC uh, sending the FBI to your place and putting you in jail, like certain people we know have done. So we all have the same information. It's our everything's always priced in the market because we already know the information that's out there. So if to say that, yeah, but I know even better than everybody that this is going to happen or that's going to happen or something's going to go up or down, even though everybody has all the information out there and the price of any stock is at equilibrium, meaning there's 50% of people that think it's too low and 50% think it's too high. If that's off kilter, then it moves until it is 50-50. So it's always a 50-50. So for us to say, well, uh, no, no, I, I know much better, that's that's saying something. And when you know how 500 stocks are going to move, that's really saying something, you know, in a day or a week or a month. So when we talk about that kind of stuff, I take it with a grain of salt because I'm like, well, okay, that's your prediction. It's it's like figuring out who's going to win a, a, a football game. And right, right. I don't know. It's 50-50 a lot of times. So it's not something that we can say, oh, because because of this thing, the market's priced improperly and is going to adjust in the next day or next week or next month. We don't know. We just know that markets are volatile. And we know that some people claim to have the answer. They know when the market is going to recover. I see this all the time. It's going to be spring. It's going to be fall. It's going to be the middle of next year. It won't be too much longer. But the truth is, Brian, I think nobody really knows, do they? Sure. I know. Market's going to recover um, later. Later. Okay. Yeah. We'll make it general. Just don't put a date on it. <laughs> I'm not going to put a date. 
But there are people on TV who said, yeah, it's going to, you know, watch out, March of next year, it's going to be a lot better, but nobody knows. Nobody knows. All I can do is, you know, I, I refer back to my time as a CPA. I remember as a CPA and all excited when the Dow hit 2000 and now it's in the 30,000s. So I can, I'm pretty good with math. I can say, you know, over the long term, in general, markets go up and I would be correct. I suppose I could be proven wrong. It might be the fall of the Roman Empire that we, we don't even know we're in, and they're going to go down for years and years to come. But I kind of doubt that. I don't think we're in the fall of the Roman Empire. I think we're in a normal in a normal market economy that we're in. Over a long haul, it goes up, but it does not do in a straight line. There's always, always fluctuations and sometimes major fluctuations, which can be devastating to someone's life because they don't have 30, 40 years. They don't have 20 years for their investment portfolio to work for them. They need it to be working for them now. And so that that's where the difficulty is. And I'm not seeing any change in prices insofar as inflation goes. I mean, President Biden says inflation is not going up, but he didn't say that inflation is going down. There's this term called peak inflation. I think that's where we are. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that was a ridiculous comment to say inflation is zero. Just because it's not increasing at an increasing rate does not mean it's decreasing or zero. It's silly to say that, uh, well, it was 9%, now it's 8, uh, zero, it's zero inflation. No, it's 8. 8 is not zero. And as we've said on the show, I think it's much more than eight for most of the things mm-hmm. that we spend money on. But that's, that wasn't, it was not an accurate statement. Inflation year over year is much higher in a lot of areas, as I mentioned, that, that we spend money on and that people spend money on. So that could be devastating for a lot of people that maybe their income isn't going up at 8% a year and their dividend yields are not going up at a relative rate or whatever, which is most people, I would say. So we're definitely going to be burdened with the increasing in costs for quite some time. But you did bring up a question uh, before we started here about recession and inflation. Yeah, I was going to say we still have a bear market. We still have inflation. My question is, do we have a recession? And I see many recessions. I was in the supermarket over the weekend. I was in the water aisle. I was looking for the water just like this lady. And she said, where's the Dasani? And I pointed to where it was. She came over and she said, $6.99. I'm not going to pay $6.99 for bottles of Dasani water. And she turned around and left. She made that decision that she was not going to buy that. And I've made this similar decisions with products that I see on the shelf. And I say, you know, I could buy that. But just on general principle, I'm not going to buy it. Is that the way a recession works? Well, first off, I think that's a pretty good decision by her part not to buy the Dasani at six ninety nine. <laughs> yeah. We live in the Pacific Northwest. The so water's pretty good out of the tap. I would say so. Yeah. I don't know why you want to pay six Sixty nine plus, you know, probably sales tax on that. I don't even know. But that doesn't seem like a wise choice. But yeah, I mean, uh, inflation, recession are two different things. I was talking to my friend this morning about, you know, she was saying, well, what about recession? Why don't you talk about that? How does that affect us? Do we live different? Is that what? I don't even know. And I said, you know. Honestly, I really don't either because when I think about a recession, the definition used to be two quarters of decreasing gross domestic product. Do I really care about gross domestic product? I'm not sure how that affects my day, honestly. Uh, gross domestic product dropped a half a percent from last quarter. Okay, so 
that doesn't sound like a good thing generally, but unless you know, you try and think, well, how does that affect me? Does that does that change the price of stuff? No, that's inflation. Okay, uh, recession, recession. Okay, that that sounds like a very broad term, and we, we would call that macroeconomics, big picture economics. It probably matters to the federal government. Maybe their tax revenues are affected by that or something, but it's not what we call microeconomics. Microeconomics more affects us, and so recession. Although it's a popular term to banner about, oh, are we in one or not? Would you even know? (laughs) I don't think you would. Why would you know if you're in one and why would you care? So from a a micro standpoint, meaning uh, you and I and people listening, actual people, I don't think recession matters that much. Now, inflation, however, does. And inflation affects, you know, it's a permanent pay cut pretty much when when that's locked in for a period of time. And so we see the government doing things that is meant to change our behavior. So one of the changes in behavior you just mentioned, the Dasani. Right. Uh, some water. It used to be three ninety nine. Now it's five ninety nine or whatever it was. Now it's six ninety nine. Six ninety nine. And now you're going. I used to buy it. Now I'm not going to buy it. Now right. I'm going to drink water out of the tap mm-hmm. because why not? Because I just won't pay that much. Right. Or you saw gasoline prices drop because people stopped driving as mm-hmm. much. You know, hey, let's go for a drive in the country. No, we're not going to do that at six bucks a gallon. And so we're all uh, cognizant of that. And so don't drive your car. You know, it's going to cost too much. Or we start, you know, we used to go out to dinner all the time and it was, you know, $45 Mm -hmm. for the two of us. And now it's $85. You go, whoa, wait a second. Maybe we'll cook at home. (laughs) So it can change behavior. We saw that with with interest rates. So the Fed has been increasing interest rates. You go, well, how does that change anything? Well, we saw what that did to the housing market. People uh, were going, well, I could afford this house at 3% mortgage. I cannot afford it at 5 The payment's uh, 30% higher. I can't afford the house anymore. I'm not going to buy the house. If you're not going to buy the house, a home builder says, I'm not going to build the house. And because my interest costs went up and people don't want to buy it because they can't afford it because interest rates went up on mortgages. And so lumber producers say, wow, we did raise our prices. Now we gotta, we, we're not going to cut as much lumber and we're not going to make as many supplies out there and so forth. So we see this kind of combo effect, uh, domino effect of interest rates increasing and that the, the Fed wanted to slow down the economy so that they slow down demand and slow down everything to make inflation slow down because we would have a change in behavior. So, Brian, inflation, recession, bear market rally, gasoline prices, all of this. We're feeling some pain right now. What does this mean, though, to the average investor? Well, for the average investor, it can be pretty painful because we saw the. it also affected the stock market. And for a lot of people, that's where all your assets are, stock and bond market. Oh, it affected the bond market, too, because interest rates went up. And it affected them both negatively. And so if all your eggs were in those baskets, you're kind of hurting right now. Uh, this has been very painful year 2022. And so for those people, though, that know that, okay, markets are going to drop, I want to be prepared for that. We could have inflation. When you bought your fixed index annuity with a guaranteed lifetime cash flow, you got one with a increasing guaranteed lifetime cash flow. When you invested in real estate, you, you bought some real estate that did well with inflationary times, such as a multifamily or self-storage with short-term leases. They actually can increase their rents without increasing their expenses going out. And so those kinds of investments actually went up during an inflationary time. So you had that balance, that diversification, the, the knowledge that all things are going to happen that are bad and all things are going to happen that are good within markets. 
We are going to have bear markets where markets, stock markets go down. We're going to have inflationary times. We're going to have recessions. We're going to have volatile markets. We're going to have growing markets. We're going to have uh, markets that don't. We're going to have sectors that are really good to own, some that are not. And we're going to talk about some sectors later. And so knowing all of that and constructing a portfolio to keep that in mind as you uh, navigate through your lifetime, especially in retirement, when your time period is shortened, it's, it's imperative that you get this stuff right, that you have access to all of that. And unfortunately, in our industry of financial advisory, many financial advisors do not have all the tools in their toolbox to accomplish all the things that I think we should tr- be trying to accomplish. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that we're having a financial storm right now, and it's a pretty good one. We've had financial storms in the past, and I've great confidence that we'll get through this again. If you're listening to all this and thinking, boy, are my roots deep enough to withstand a financial storm? Well, if you don't know, we've got a very simple way for you to find out. Simply go to Madrona Financial, click on the Get Started button to check how deep your financial roots are. It'll only take about 30 seconds. You'll answer a few questions and schedule a time that someone can talk to you from Madrona Financial to find out how deep your financial roots are. Hopefully, they're deep enough to withstand any financial storm. But if they're not, they'll get you on the right path to make sure that you come out unscathed. Again, it's madronafinancial.com. Click on the Get Started button. Growing your wealth will be right back with even more ways to help sustain yourself and your wealth for years to come. Tired of only getting half the story? That's why it's so important to get your financial information from a CPA and an advisor like Brian Evans. Now let's get back to some of the most comprehensive financial information around. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial and CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be breaking down sectors of the market. And Brian, I think a lot of people would think, well, the market, when you talk about the market, you're talking about the stock market. That has to be the largest sector of the market. But indeed, that is not correct, is it? Yeah, as listeners of the show know that the bond market is actually bigger than the stock market. So if you add up the value of all publicly traded companies and compare it to the value of all bonds that are outstanding, the bond market is way bigger than the stock market. So we have more money borrowed than we have essentially invested, which is kind of frightening, I guess, Mm -hmm. a little bit. But so let's start with the bond market. And when we say the bond market, well, what does that mean? There's all different kinds of bonds. So I kind of wanted to spend a little bit of just kind of 40,000 foot view as to what kind of bonds we're talking about. So the biggest area of the bond market is treasuries. So that's the the government funding itself, essentially. And that's 35% of the total bond market. The next big is corporations. Corporations borrow money, and they own about 22% of the overall bond market. The next one, about the same size, is mortgage-related. Mm-hmm. So when you take money out on a mortgage, that mortgage is sold. It's bundled with a whole bunch of other ones. Sometimes the bundles smell really bad, like they did in 2008, and we had a, <laughs> a, a meltdown. But they're bundled together like that. The next area, about 10% of the bond market is municipal, meaning cities and, and sewer systems and, and that kind of thing. And then rounding out the final 10%, uh, we'll call that money markets, asset-backed agencies, securities, that kind of thing, but kind of smaller areas. So the the main area is that when you you buy a bond fund, if you're buying, a a, say, an aggregate bond fund, a a mix, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot of treasury debt, uh, government debt, corporate debt, mortgage debt, and city debt. And we have heard that the bond market has not been doing well lately. It has in the past. If it's not doing well, why is the bond market so large? Is it just large because it's been good in the past? 
Pretty much. Um, I would say that's actually kind of accurate because a lot of people are slow to change their investment philosophies. And so, you know, it worked for 40 years uh, while the interest rates were, were dropping, bond values went up and bonds used to pay pretty decent yields. So they were, they were good for a long time. And so people were comfortable being in bonds. I do not for the life of me understand why people buy bonds in the last couple of years sometimes where remember a year ago, we were talking about negative yielding foreign bonds. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, why would you sign up for 10 years of losing money? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't, but people did it, I but guess. But they did it. And so, because <laughs> that's what we do. Okay, well, great, super. I don't know. I, I have a common sense gene, I guess, somewhere built in <laughs> yeah, my head. it's good. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's a good thing. And so, you know, and I certainly, uh, as we've been talking on this show, rates are, they were zero. I mean, the Fed was right. lending money at zero. Uh, do we think that's going to go up, down, or sideways? You know, pretty, well, probably up. And what happens when interest rates go up? You lose money in bonds. Okay, well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to lose money in bonds. Maybe I don't want 60% of my portfolio on something I'm going to lose money in. I don't know. It's just, again, common sense. So I think it's, yeah, just people are used to investing in them or are unaware of the alternatives. And so when you go to a lot of financial advisors, you go, well, what can you invest me in? Well, stocks, bonds, and cash. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, well. Three choices. Uh, I don't want all my money in stocks. Great. I'll sell you some bonds. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. But the bond market is enormous and we're seeing rates go up, meaning investors are starting to require a higher yield in order to buy a bond to lend somebody the money because inflation's here. And so people say, well, I don't want to be paid uh, 1% on my treasury when inflation's 9%. <laughs> I'm going to lose 8 uh, At least pay me 3 so I can only lose, I don't know, you know, 6 <laughs> Even that is kind of absurd when it rolls off the tongue here. And so bond markets are what they are. They are lending somebody money to pay you back with a stated interest rate. There are other ways to do that, though, outside of the bond market. So we have something called private non non-traded debt REITs, Mm -hmm. so where the investor kind of assumes the role of a traditional bank in that companies will gather large amounts of money and lend them out to corporations or to real estate owners and take back the stock of the corporation as security or the real estate as security. And so you're essentially being a bank, uh, secured lending, but the interest rates you can get paid are much higher than what a bank offers because banks are basically often kicked out of that business essentially through the fallout of regulations post-2008 with all the banking reforms that had to happen. So the private market has had to pick this up. Uh, Your yields can be quite high in this regard, unlike the bond market where yields are typically quite low. And so that is one way to get into where you can be essentially lending somebody money through uh, private non-traded debt REITs and receive cash flow that's much, much higher than you might through uh, traditional bond areas. So private non-traded debt REITs, one alternative to the bond market. What are some of the other alternatives? I use uh, fixed index annuities as an alternative or fixed annuities. Fixed annuities, as the name implies, they'll tell you what they're going to pay you. And let's say you buy a three-year or a five-year, you're going to get that rate of return for that period of time. No fees associated with that, no commissions paid to the, the agent or whatever from you. It's paid by the insurance company instead. So you know exactly what you're going to get. The rate of return is higher than you're going to get uh, typically. Uh, I say the word typically, but I haven't seen where it isn't, but. Okay, typically, it's higher than you would get from buying a treasury bond or anything else, uh, any kind of bond 
investment that's high quality. I also use fixed indexed annuities, which can offer a, a higher return than a fixed annuity as a bond alternative too, because their role in my portfolio is for security. And that has been traditionally the role of bonds in a lot of portfolios. And so, but bonds lost money in 2022 because rates went up, they lost money. So that doesn't sound very secure to me. So I like the idea of fixed index annuities that have, uh, they generally have a floor of zero and can have a decent upside, uh, much higher than what I've seen with the bond markets. Brian, you mentioned annuities there, which, of course, are insurance company products. Given the state of the uh, current economy and the state of the bond market, the state of the market, are more people interested in uh, the safety of insurance products than they ever have been before? I would say yes. And one of the things I've noticed is that if you look at most of my clients are baby boomers. Okay, let's just call that one out. And let's say I was given the, doing the show with you seven years ago. And when I was talking about most of the clients that being baby boomers, they were hmm, seven years younger than they are today. Right. Now they are seven years older and as a group. And so that whole group, as it ages, we tend to get, as anybody ages, they tend to get more conservative with yeah. their investment portfolios. Mm-hmm. So as the years go by, the fixed index annuities, the insurance space, the security of that is getting more and more popular conversation. Now, where they weren't as popular a couple of years ago, they weren't able to pay much because interest rates were so low. But now that interest rates are climbing back up, they're able to pay a higher uh, return. I've, I've seen higher caps on fixed index annuities this year than I ever have in my entire career where I've been selling fixed index annuities. So not only are my clients older and more susceptible to wanting the security of fixed index annuity, not only did they have the experience of losing money with the bond market losing money in this year, but they also are now getting offered returns much higher than they ever have been offered before. So kind of the trifecta there to where I'm having a lot more discussions about how to use fixed index annuities as a component of your financial plan. We're talking about the size of the markets and in particular the bond market with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial and CPAs. Brian, in the few minutes that we have left in this particular segment, we talked about the bond market, but let's begin a discussion about the stock market. What are the major sectors of the stock market? Yeah, I'd like to start out uh, just kind of talking about the different sectors. So we talk about sector investing on this show, but people only go, I don't understand what that is. What's a sector? And, you know, what is that? Well, the stock market can basically, you know, we have the S&P 500. So we kind of know what that is. Maybe it's it's uh, essentially the 500 biggest U.S. companies. It isn't, but that's essentially what it is. And so it's an average of those. Now, within that, we can then break it down into the sectors, the different areas of the market. And there's about 10. And so the first one is we call it information technology. So a whole bunch of the 500 biggest companies are in something called information technology. And that would include internet companies, companies that make computers and microprocessors, operating systems. So you think Microsoft, Oracle, even MasterCard is considered an information technology because sure. there is no credit card sector. It's, it's part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, companies that basically uh, ones and zeros <laughs> kind of dominate what they do. Semiconductors is, is in this area. 
now this this area tends to have a lot of volatility, probably the most of any sector. You can have companies that have rapid rises, rapid falls, changes. Uh, companies that were were doing well, you know, five years ago may not now, and and vice versa. So that is a volatile area of the market. A lot of people made a lot of money in information technology companies, and a lot of people lost a lot of money depending on their timing. So, Brian, with information technology, it appears that almost everything we do has to do with IT. Does that mean that information technology is the biggest market sector of the stock market? Yeah, it, it it is the biggest sector of the stock market. And the best, you know, when you hear the people say, oh, the Dow was up 1% today, the S&P was up 1%, the NASDAQ was up 2%. The NASDAQ is really heavy in IT stocks. And so it, its top holdings are pretty much all information technology stocks. And some companies, it's hard to say what they are. I mean, you might say, you know, say well, Amazon, they're a retailer, right? Well, maybe. Or they're a technology company. Or they're a, what is Yahoo? Well, that's actually an advertising right, company. Right, right, right. You know, Facebook's an advertising company, mm-hmm. but it's a technology company. But, you know, which one is it? It gets its revenue from advertising, but its product is technologically done. So, you know, there, there is a lot of crossover with that, but IT is the biggest sector. We're talking with Brian Evans here about the size of the market sectors on Growing Your Wealth. Hope you're enjoying the radio program. If you are unsure about how deep your financial roots are and you want to take a free, as in complimentary, no cost, no obligation quiz to see how deep your financial roots are, simply go to madronafinancial.com and click on the Get Started button. You drive around sometimes after a big storm, you see these big trees lying on their sides and you take a look at the roots and they're little tiny roots. And the same thing can happen to your financial portfolio if your financial roots are not deep enough. To prevent your portfolio from falling over on its side, simply get in touch with Madrona Financial at madronafinancial.com. Click on the Get Started button and find out how deep your financial roots are. Once again, it's madronafinancial.com. Want more strategies that can help support the quality of life you want for 30 plus years? Well, stick around. We'll be right back with more Growing Your Wealth. Big trees fall when storms hit because they don't have deep enough roots. The same goes with your finances. Your quality of life depends on how deep your financial roots are today, tomorrow, and for years to come. If you want to learn how to design your retirement to last 30-plus years, then grab your copy of 7 Steps to a Successful Retirement by calling Madrona Financial and CPAs at 844-MADRONA or go to madronafinancial.com. Now back to more of Growing Your Wealth. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial and CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to continue our discussion about sectors of the equity markets. And Brian, we talked about the stock market and information technology being the number one sector and the biggest. So let's go on to number two, not surprising. Healthcare. Right. Yeah. So medical supply companies, pharmaceuticals, they're huge. Scientific-based operations or services, those kinds of things. So think Johnson Johnson, medical devices, pharmaceuticals that own like Tylenol and, and so forth. Well, let's see, Moderna. I hadn't really heard about that a whole lot until COVID oh, yeah. came along. Mm-hmm. Or, Before COVID. Or, yeah. And, uh, you know, Pfizer's and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, healthcare is second biggest sector out there. Another uh, kind of volatile sector over the years. I know that during the 90s, a lot of people, especially at Boeing, would invest in the, I think it was a health and technology fund that they had. And it was just doing phenomenally until it wasn't uh, in the early 2000s. And it had a dramatic drop at that point in time. Healthcare companies can have dramatic increases. You know, they get a patent or whatever that they, they've been working on forever, or they get turned down. <laughs> so you, you can see 
with individual stocks, big adjustments. But long term, it's been a pretty good sector for a lot of people overall, but uh, it is the second biggest sector. So healthcare is the second biggest sector. Let's go on to number three. Yeah, number three is financials. And financials, anybody in finance, investing, banks, of course, credit card companies, credit unions, insurance companies are part of that. The mortgage real estate market is is in there. So pretty much any of the, you know, think of the Wall Street companies typically uh, when you think of this area, but the financial area, uh, they don't really produce product. It's it's more, uh, it's uh, money and the movement of money and, and the lending of money and, and so forth. That's the third biggest area. So when we talk about the size of the markets, number one, again, information technology, number two, healthcare, number three, financials, number four, consumer discretionary. What does that mean? Yeah, well, there's two uh, consumer categories and one's down the list a ways, which is kind of surprising. I think 50 years ago, we'd say consumer staples was mm-hmm. a big one, but right. we got to wait to get to that one because we're at consumer discretionary. Our generation is way more affluent than our parents' generation or their parents' generation. There is so much more abundance of stuff. Remember in the old days, you had one radio, oh, yeah. one car, you know. One TV. One TV. It was small, <laughs> probably black and black white. And white yeah. You recovered your couch. True. You didn't waste any food. You never went out to dinner. Nope, nope. I mean, all these things. And so, well, those days are different. So now the fourth biggest category is consumer discretionary, meaning I have a discretion over where other I want to spend this money or not. And so you know, we're talking about uh, based on the economic conditions and wealth of individuals. So cars, fancy cars. Yeah. I mean, think about what cars do now compared to what they used oh to. Oh, my gosh. Oh, geez. They used to get you from point A to point B. Now, oh, I, I mean, that. if it just does that, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're at a loss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I looked at a car for my son recently and I was like, what? No Bluetooth? <laughs> what are we talking How about How can here? we survive without How that? How can we survive? I mean, they practically now, well, some cars do drive them. Themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. I have cars that have, you know, the lane assist that keep you in the lanes. I mean, I'm waiting for them to make coffee for me and tell me a story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's literally, I think, half the buttons in my car. I don't even know what they do. Uh, me it's too. Just, uh, yeah. Whatever. And so, uh, uh, but other areas, jewelry, sporting goods, but electronic devices, huge one there. Yeah, yeah. Trips, hotels, restaurants, some of the companies in dis- consumer discretionary, Starbucks. I mean, you can make your own cup of coffee or give them five dollars oh, for yeah, them to man. make it for you. Well, that's mandatory Starbucks, isn't it? Five, six bucks a day for a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I believe Amazon is actually in this one, oh, uh, yeah, discretionary, because yeah, yeah. sure, sure. I'm pretty sure you could live without Amazon, even though you, you're probably listening and go, I don't know how I lived without Amazon. Yeah. Once upon a time, they didn't have it, and I'm, I couldn't live without it now, because yeah. I buy all this stuff that I need, but uh, somehow you didn't need it 10 years ago, but here it is. And so uh, Best Buy is another one, but... And certainly, as you mentioned, with with cars, I mean, you could buy a car that gets you point A to point B probably for not a whole lot of money or spend four times as much and get all the buttons you don't know how to use. But, <laughs> That's true. Uh, but that is uh, consumer discretionary. All right. So consumer discretionary. And uh, I wonder sometimes about some of these things if you need them. When you talked about sporting goods, I mean, you used to buy just a pair of athletic shoes or something and they would be Keds or something like that. But now, I mean, these are Jordans. They're collectible items, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I... I I, 
well, it's kind of funny because I, I've bought shoes for my kids, my, my boys, over the years. Right. And, and I literally still have not to this day spent more on my own pair of shoes oh, than yeah. I have for theirs. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Uh, why <laughs> Why do I have to spend a hundred something dollars for my kids' shoes? And I will, I will, I just can't get myself to do that. No, I do the same thing too. A lot of times I look at them and I find sale items online. I mean, my budget for these athletic shoes, I hate to say it, is like about 50 bucks or so. We're sounding really old today. Uh, we are yes. really, yeah, really old. Dating ourselves. But that's bit. the way it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. I don't need $300 Air Jordans. Okay, next one up here, uh, Brian. Is going to be communication services. I think I know what this is, but explain. Yeah, where would we be without our cell phones? That's Again, right, right. I don't know how we lived when we weren't able to contact each other. Have every you ever lost 10 your minutes. cell phone and the panic that just <laughs> overcomes you? Uh, it, it would be well. Usually, it's just I, I ran out of charge. And I can't find a charger where I'm at. It's right, like, right. Oh, I get so frustrated. I don't know how many chargers I have now for that. But yeah, media, entertainment, interactive media. Uh, I think Netflix, Walt Disney Company. Company, considered part of the communication services sector, of all things. Other company, AT&T, CBS, Facebook, uh, I guess we call that a communications company. I'm not sure what to call Facebook. I think it's an advertising company. Yeah, and I guess, well, advertising is communication in, in some regard. I guess, yeah. So, um, yeah, so communication services is the fifth uh, of the of the sectors. And that brings us up to industrials. Yeah. So with industrials, uh, wide-ranging companies, you know, because, you know, with 10 classification, 10, 11 classifications, as I mentioned, some companies don't really fit any of them really all that well. But uh, industrials, when you hear that term, you're thinking airlines, so Boeing, uh, railroad companies, military weapons manufacturers. There's 14 subsectors to this area, but aerospace defense and construction and engineering, best known, some of the best known names would be the airlines, Delta or Southwest, or FedEx, and as I mentioned, Boeing Company. So a pretty wide range there of an industrial complex type companies are thrown into that. But interestingly enough, it's only six biggest on the list. Mm. Um, there's more investment to more value of companies in communication or consumer discretionary than there is in industrials. I don't think that used to be the case back when we were younger. No, we're talking about the size of the stock market and the different sectors here with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial and CPAs. Next one up on the list, Brian, you mentioned it, is consumer staples. Yeah, oh, seventh on the list. I mean, yeah. consumer staples is stuff we need to live. You know, household right. products and food and beverage companies and personal product providers. Think Procter and Gamble, and and uh, you know, it produces bleach and laundry detergent and and Dawn and Tide and all this stuff. Kroger supermarkets, that kind of thing. Stuff we need to get by. Stuff that stayed open essentially. By the way, during COVID, right? Uh, I had real estate investments uh, that did quite well because they were in companies that offered consumer staples or we called it necessity-based retail, mm-hmm. uh, things that you had to have. I mean, you don't have to have a Starbucks, but but you have to have, you know, toilet paper or right, whatever, you right, know. Right. And so uh, those kinds of, of stores remained open even through COVID and thrived. Dollar stores, you know, or consumer staples. And so they thrived through that time, whereas a lot of other companies, uh, maybe in the consumer discretionary, not so much. And I'm surprised that the next one is uh, below consumer staples. I would have really thought this would be much higher on the list, but that's energy. Yeah, there's another one. We turn the dial back on the clock 30 years. You look at the S&P 500, the names at the top were Exxon and Chevron. Mm -hmm. They're way down the list now. They're nowhere close to the size of Amazon and Microsoft and Apple. 
So you're right. They have gone down the list uh, considerably. And so, uh, you know, companies that find, drill, and extract oil, and primarily, uh, you know, Exxon and Chevron, as I just mentioned, but there's also transport of oil. And now we're, we're seeing probably a growth resurgence in this area through clean energy companies because of all the state mandates, the federal mandates, the electric cars, all that kind of thing. We're probably going to see more and more investment into this sector. So I think we're going to see somewhat of a rebound as far as uh, the investment in this sector. And I'm not surprised about the next one, Ryan, because I think everyone needs utilities of some sort. Yeah, you know, we're down at the bottom of the list before we got to industrials, staples, energy, and utilities. Uh, the first part of the list is stuff we don't need, <laughs> pretty yeah, much. Right. I, I don't <laughs> think I need IT to live. Not uh, necessarily. Information technology. I, I do need health care. Right, right, yeah, right. That one's on there. And, and finances, okay. But consumer discretionary and communications, you don't need them to live with. But yeah, down the list, number nine, utilities. So electricity, water, you know, gas to buildings, natural gas, uh, that kind of thing. Duke Energy, uh, Southern Company, different utilities out there. But again, we're also seeing uh, utility companies developing more renewable energy sources, too. And the next one, uh, I'm not surprised about this, is real estate. Yeah, real estate in the stock market is held through real estate investment trusts. Now, this is a bit of a misnomer because real estate, there's a lot more real estate than is represented in REITs, real estate investment trusts. And that's all this is measuring. And so when you look at real estate that's not in REITs, it's actually almost as big as the stock market. And so take that with a grain of salt. A lot of the investments that we make for clients clients are outside of publicly traded REITs. But within the S&P 500, it's the 10th biggest sector with uh, real estate investment trusts. And then finally, down at the bottom here, number 11 is materials. What exactly are materials? Yeah, this this is the raw material. Again, you go back in time, there was a lot of value in production of raw materials. So whether that's mining, you know, gold, zinc, copper, forestry for lumber, that kind of thing, any kind of you know plastics, whatever, uh, we need materials to produce things. But we got uh, away from a production-based economy many years ago into a service-based economy. That's why IT is first on the list, and materials is now last. So most everything that you can invest in in the stock market falls within one of those 11 categories. Talking about the size of the markets with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial and CPAs. And of course, as you always know, if you're a regular listener to this program, you can go to madronafinancial.com, click on the Get Started button, and find out how deep your financial roots are. It's really something that you should know. And it's a lot simpler than it sounds in terms of determining how deep those roots are. Simply go to Madrona Financial, click on the Get Started button, answer a couple of questions, and you'll get started on your path to deepening your financial roots so that when storms like this happen, they do not topple over your financial tree. Once again, it's madronafinancial.com. Click on the Get Started button. Stay tuned for more Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans, the show you can't afford to miss. Do you ever worry if your CPA and financial advisor are on the same page? You won't have to if you call Madrona Financial and CPAs at 844-MADRONA or go to madronafinancial.com. Now back to more Growing Your Wealth. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial and CPAs. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about some of the interesting cases I had this week. 
And Brian, we were talking about pension decisions last week, and the, you know the question comes up quite frequently: Should I take a lump sum or take a monthly annuity? And I, and I know that you get asked that question all the time. So let's talk about some of the interesting cases that came up this week that may pertain to that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I did want to say about that too is, you know, on this show, whenever you ask me a definitive question, I always give you the right answer. It depends. Right, right. And this one really hit home as to why I have to say that over and over because I was presented with a situation where this person's working at Boeing and they're in their early 60s and they're considering retiring. And so part of that decision was if I do retire, should I retire before the end of the year when I hear the lump sum is going to drop because interest rates have gone back up, meaning that sure, Boeing will will pay you X amount per month, but if you instead wanted to take a lump sum, if you wait until next year, your lump sum is going to be much less. So she wanted me to analyze that. I said, okay, why don't you send me your figures? Well, she sent me two sets. She had two different pensions, She'd been working at Boeing, same company, but she had two different union representing the negotiations of those pensions. And they came on the same sheets of paper. They had the exact same alternatives, just different numbers. And I thought, okay, I'm going to probably be able to analyze one of these and look at the other and go, yeah, well, we'll do the same thing for both. That did not happen. So the first one I did, I looked at it and I looked at the lump sum relative to the uh, lifetime pension uh, monthly checks. And I was shocked to see that the break even point was about 11 years. So she would be in her early 70s. And everything after that, every check she received would be profit, essentially, a gain. And I'm like, wow, that lump sum is huge relative to the payout. So I looked at that and I said, wow, uh, that monthly pension is really high relative to the lump sum. And so I uh, was, you know, of course, going to tell my client, if you retire, take that monthly check. And so I pulled up the second one. I thought, well, I'm going to probably see the same thing. Nope. It was closer to 18 year break even interesting and she was going to be around close to 80 years old <laughs> before any of the checks were profit right right and i was like what how could there be such a discrepancy it's the same company and the same computations, but they had almost the same lump sum, but one of them had roughly 60% of the payout, even though they had the same lump sum, just, I guess, different negotiators and different whatever it was. But the point was, I thought, well, gosh, if your break even is close to 80 years old, we could take that lump sum now, invest it, and hopefully by the time that period of time has, has happened, we more than double the amount. And so she'll have a lot more money with that than she would if she took the monthly checks. And so so my answer to her was not consistent. Uh, on the one hand, I said take the monthly checks. On the other one, I said take the lump sum. Two choices within the same company, different unions, allowing for the pension decision. So big company like Boeing may have different unions, so there can be some uh, different pension decisions there. Is this, is this something that's just Boeing or is this something we're seeing with big companies all around the country? Well, honestly, I don't see a lot of other pension decisions other than governmental workers anymore. Right. Boy, pensions it just dried up across the board. I, yeah, if you I, got one, be, you just be very grateful. Yeah, you should be grateful if you have one. So you're either a public servant or you worked at Boeing. I, frankly, I, IT companies, all of them, they don't, they don't, never done pensions. Maybe, right. maybe IBM did back in the day. I don't even know. But I, I just haven't really seen any across my desk that aren't public servants or military or Boeing. We're talking with Brian. 
Evans here of Madrona Financial and CPAs talking about some cases that uh, came across his desk this past week. Brian, I understand that you have another one you want to tell us about. Yes, I was talking to uh, this couple that, you know, one of the comments he made was, oh, we're probably overweight in real estate. Uh, We have too much real estate. Because, you know, he's been told that you're only supposed to have X amount in it or whatever. And I said, oh, wait a second. Every investment has its purpose. So we have to look at the purpose of the money, of the investment, to see if it fits. If the purpose of some money is cash flow, you don't want to put that into Berkshire Hathaway or a a lot of stocks. Uh, If it's security, again, you don't want to put that into the stock market. If it's liquidity, you don't want to put that into a universal life policy. You know, So everything has purpose and, and everything has things it does not do. So he brought up the, the real estate and I said, well, let's let's examine that. The real estate you own, tell me a little bit more about it again. And he reiterated, I said, well, I just heard that your kids live in the houses on your properties. And that's where you're living to be near your grandkids. That investment is serving its purpose. Mm-hmm. You will not be happier not being near your grandkids when your kids not having a really nice place to live. And your account balance, though, has more money in the stock market. That will not make you happier. You're in the right place. It's okay to have a higher percentage in something because it's fulfilling its purpose. Its purpose is to provide housing for your kids and your grandkids. There is nothing wrong with that. And in this case, this person had real estate in Washington State and Texas, mm-hmm. which you know I, I haven't seen a lot of people lose money in, in real estate in those two states of late. So even, even the location was good. So I did correct him and said, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing to have an overweight in something when that's the purpose for it. They have a bunch of kids and uh, lots of grandkids, and that's what's important to them. So having that uh, fulfilled as opposed to just having a higher balance on the stock market segment, I'll take the real estate any day. Yeah, and I've written that down. I think that's a good thing for people to remember is that your investments really need to serve their purpose. Brian, I understand that there is some activity or at least a lot of a lot more activity here insofar as DST's Delaware Statutory Trust. Yeah, of late, a lot of the Delaware, so we'll back up here, Delaware Statutory Trust is where someone had some investment real estate, appreciated, they sold it, they didn't want to pay the tax. So they did a 1031 exchange into passive real estate, in this case through a Delaware Statutory Trust, because that's the only way you can really do that, to where you could sell your investment real estate, reinvest the proceeds into a DST. What is a DST? It's a vehicle that allows for 1031 exchange. And a lot of times they'll own necessity-based retail, multifamily, self-storage, Amazon industrial parks, whatever, distribution centers, that kind of thing. And so uh, what I've noticed is for the first time in a long time, there's been a lot of real estate activity out there. And COVID, I think, really slowed things down. But now we're seeing shifting demographics and we're seeing a lot of demand in uh, Florida, Texas, North Carolina, Tennessee, Colorado, Arizona, Sunbelt states, that kind of thing. And certainly tax-free states like Texas, you're leading the way. Now, a lot of the DSTs were situated in those areas. And so the sponsors, the people that put these together, are getting a really solid offers, like very good offers uh, often on their properties. And they had intended to hold their DSTs for closer to 10 years. 
but a lot of them are now selling after four or five years. And so a lot of them are going, we call it full cycle right now, to where I'm getting uh, emails all the time saying, well, this DST that you put six of your clients into, uh, we're selling it in, in a month. And so let us know what your client wants to do. And so I look at the numbers and I go, holy cats, I know two things. One is I got some work to do, me and my staff, because mm-hmm. we got to work with the client to figure out you know, what they want to do, usually do another DST. And we have to do a lot of tax computations and figure out if we're replacing the debt. And I won't get into all the specifics. A lot of work on our end. I know that. And the other thing I've been no- noticing is I'm going to have a phone call with a client. They're going to be really happy mm-hmm. because I've been seeing some incredible returns from uh, a lot of these, not everyone, but uh, a lot of them because of inflation. Inflation drove up rents in apartments and self-storage and anything with short-term leases. And that is the demand is so great that people are buying, trying to buy, and they're willing to accept really low rates of return. Buyers are. So we as the seller are getting uh, offers way higher than my client paid for these things. And so I'm calling up the client and they're, well, I'm disappointed that they're selling. I like that. I know that, but your gain is X. And they're going, oh, well, I like that. So we get to, I get to have all this extra money into a new DST. And like, yeah. Or, or you take the money and pay the tax. And like, oh, I don't want to pay the tax. You know, they, they want to get that. And sometimes we're splitting it into multiple DSTs because it's gone up so much in value. So that, that was an interesting thing. You know, we hear about the markets going down. Certainly I've, I've seen a different kind of thing. Generally speaking, you know, I can't speak to everything, but uh, a lot of private non-traded real estate investment trusts, a lot of Delaware statutory trusts have benefited greatly from inflation due to rising rents. And pretty much the only people that make money, uh, during inflationary times are landlords with uh, tenants with short-term leases. So think self-storage, multifamily. That's what most of the DSTs tend to be. And so I'm seeing some really interesting returns from that. And Delaware Statutory Trust is one of the things that you can talk about here at Madrona Financial that a lot of uh, financial professionals and people in the investment game really can't talk about because they just don't understand it. So if you're an active landlord, you want to know more about Delaware Statutory Trust and how it can kick the tax can down the road and all the particulars, contact Madrona Financial. And once again, uh, before we go, I want to remind you to check your financial roots. It's very simple. Go to madronafinancial.com. Click on the Get Started button to see how deep your financial roots are. If they're not deep enough, Madrona will help you deepen them to the point where when a financial storm does come your way, it will not blow over your financial tree. Again, it's madronafinancial.com. Click on the Get Started button. Well, Brian, we're out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out. Have a great weekend. This great part of the country that we live in. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. No statements made during the Growing Your Wealth show should constitute tax, legal, or accounting advice. You should consult your own legal or tax professional on your individual information. Brian Evans and Madrona Financial Services is licensed to offer investment advisory services through Madrona Financial Services, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Insurance products are offered through Madrona Insurance Services, LLC, a licensed insurance agency and an affiliate of Madrona Financial Services. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Investors cannot invest directly into indexes. No investment strategy, including asset allocation and diversification, guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes.